As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and the newest instalment of Listener Questions. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, we have a man who answers listener questions like Liverpool win Merseyside derbies convincingly. Taylor Rockwell. Oh, that's high praise to start. Thank you for that. You're very welcome. I feel like I always put a lot of praise on Joe and not enough on you and Graham, so I'm going to reverse that today. Yeah, in your face, Joe. (laughs) I'm also going to praise Joe. (laughs) Nah, don't worry worry about that. Also here, on that note, is a man who answers listener questions like Bernardo Silva, scores winners against Aston Villa, with precision and style, Graham Rutherford. See, praise, I don't like praise. It makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) Oh my God. And uh, I'll just say thank you, Ryan, and we'll just move on. Very well. Also here is a man who answers listener questions like Neil Morpé scores bicycle kicks against West Ham. With accuracy and devastating consequence, Joe Lowry. <laughs> oh, Ryan, these were all beautiful, and I just appreciate Graham squirming under the lightest compliment. Um, hello. Hello. Hello, Joe. Um, t- uh, Graham, coming back to you, what would you like me to do? Insult or praise? Which is your preference? See, to get to sleep at night, and this is not even a, a joke, I, I, I listen to, like, white noise on uh like noise cancelling headphones and so if if we could just have a my introduction could just be white noise that would that would uh soothe me and and calm me down so walk me through this how does that work um do you like set it on a timer for like a couple of hours because it, it wasn't it, um i think wayne rooney who can only sleep on an airplane if he lies on the floor of the airplane because of the noise and vibration Wait, what? similar thing Wait, hold on. In the aisle, Wayne Rooney's sorry, just Sorry, Wayne, can f- I just step over you to get to the bathroom, please? Okay, sorry, sorry. <laughs> exactly. I'm sure I read a story somewhere. I'm going to have to Google it in a minute that Wayne Rooney sleeps on the floor of the airplane, maybe in his PJ. I don't know. It, PJ, PJ's I mean, in his PJ. Um, yeah, I'm going to say that's like a private jet floor, not the, like, yeah. he's not flying coach and, and like, strewn, strewn about in the cabin. Yeah, I can just imagine like the, the, the car getting pushed into like the top of his head as he's lying on the aisle. So, so, so Graham, is that what you're like? You're on the floor with your Wait. white noise uh, headphones on? Uh, yes, that's exactly like what I do, correct. And, and to be clear, by white noise, we just mean Billy Gilmore ASMR, right? I assume we're all oh, yeah, on the same absolutely. page with that. Yeah. Okay, of course. Cool. White noise is what you get when you go to the mall in Arizona, isn't it, Joe? <laughs> I mean, at least a good chunk of it. Yeah, that's about right. Oh, Graham, it does explain why your Spotify most played was just white noise for the top 10 songs. <laughs> it was in the top 20, uh, and then the rest was just Coco Melon, which is why I didn't share any of <laughs> By the way, I have to clarify, it's my daughter listening to Coco Melon, not myself. Sure, uh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yep. but I, I didn't share my, my uh, Spotify uh, unwrapped. Graham, you know how I know that you're a parent? It's how? because you say things like Coco Melon and expect everyone to know what you're talking about. Yeah, I don't know what that is either. <laughs> What? It's my life. <laughs> what? What is Coco Melon? Uh, Coco Melon is like just wee little songs uh-huh. um, for children, and they're like hour long episodes. So you just stick it on for the whole day, and there's a little baby and a family and everything in it. 
and it's yeah, it's my daughter's life. I am now picturing your daughter watching Coco Melon while you watch your twelve soccer games at the exact same time. Is that how it works? <laughs> Do you just have a wall of screens and one of them is Coco Melon? Yes, exactly. Perfect. Perfect. I Perfect. think uh, his, his daughter's room is also a wall of screens. One's got Peppa Pig, one's got Coco Melon. It's like he's <laughs> learning from the old man to multi-screen. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Anyway, we, we have derailed very quickly on this listener episode question. We should probably get back on track and answer some of our listeners' questions. Thank you very much to those who have submitted TotalSockShow.com if you want to do so as well. We go first to Richard Rolson. For MLS to take the next step in its evolution, does it need to take better control of its playoffs? Asks Richard. This year, MLS playoffs saw almost every team playing twice before the revolution even had played a game. Does MLS need to be more confident in their scheduling and place their games on dates that seem to build off each other so fans can get better can better know when games will be played? And is there a better build up? I think um, Revs fan Sailor might agree with Richard here that it might need restructuring. Um, we're speaking just before the conference finals taking place. We're speaking just after the revolution uh, played NYC FC in the last conference semi. That was 23 days after their last regular season game, Taylor. Over three weeks after their last regular season game, they had to wait to play their first playoff. Uh, I actually ran the numbers and um, the it, it seems like that's the longest break we've had in MLS, certainly in the last few years. 2019, um, NYCFC and LAFC waited 17 and 18 days, respectively, to play their first playoffs because they got the buys. Um, Taylor, your thoughts on structure and timing of the playoffs? I think it's always a confusing thing when it comes to Major League Soccer playoffs, that sometimes they go very long. Back when we had the two legs home and away, you ended up getting, what, like stretching into like mid-December. Here we are again with them in December. I do think it tends to kind of fluctuate a bit much for my liking. I look at other uh, leagues in the United States, like the NFL, you sort of always know what that structure is going to be. You know how it's going to work. You mostly know when those games are going to be happening Sunday, maybe sometimes Saturday, but you know that it's going to be on the weekend and you can sort of prepare for it, build around it. I think MLS has to take some steps to ensure that they have eyes on their games and they can kind of pick spots when they know other things aren't going to be happening so they can get more attention. They can make sure that they get fans in the stands because if you have the Revolution playing a game, they're splitting that stadium with the Patriots. So you have to kind of work around that schedule too. So it is a balancing act, certainly. And I don't think you can just have it be like, we're playing here at this time. That's how it's going to be, especially with how unpredictable the playoffs can be and even just the regular season can be. So I think... It, it's a really interesting question from Richard. We had a lot of really interesting questions this week because I think it's a logical question to ask and it's a logical thing to want. But simultaneously, I think it's a harder thing to execute than I initially thought it would be before I started thinking about this question. OK, and, and why specifically is it hard is a hard thing to execute just because of the, the lack of weekends to get it done? Yeah, basically. And I and I think it's just it's also difficult when you have those variables like, again, going back to like the shared stadiums, Atlanta United has the same thing. Seattle, the same that like you have to kind of you can't just say we're doing it here. That's how it's going to going to be, because there might be a home playoff game or there might be a home game for uh, for the Seahawks, let's say. And so you've got to kind of have that balance of when can we schedule it? We don't know if we're going to be a top seed. We don't know who will be the number one seed or, oh, the number one seed got knocked off. So now we're hosting a playoff game and we didn't, didn't expect to. I think there are those sort of uh, adjustments that have to be made on the fly. And I think they can lead to a more convoluted process. But I think fundamentally to Richard's question, Yes, I think there probably should be that number one seed playing first. I don't think it makes sense to have them wait to play until the final game of that stage. You should probably reward them or maybe let it be up to them when they want to play first or, or last, because then, you know, you're rewarding that performance over the season. Graham, it's been a minute since I watched MLS playoffs from a European time zone, so they're all pretty wild. I'm waking up and some games are finishing and they're yeah. all on different kind of days. So your perspective on, on the uh, organization of the playoffs. Yeah, when, when Taylor was talking there about knowing when something is, is going to happen, that, that's the that's the big thing for me. And th I think there is a lack of a designated, if you want mm -hmm. to call it MLS hour. Um, and I think that's just detrimental to the league's, gro uh, league's growth as a whole. And, and this is something that the Premier League does very well. So every weekend, I know when matches are going to be on every weekend in the Premier League. I could even tell you if you told me that there was a big game, you know, a Man at Liverpool game, I could 
probably tell you that game's either going to be 5.30 on Saturday UK time or 4pm on Sunday because that's when those games go on and and I just think obviously I know there are geographical issues and Taylor mentions there rightfully that there's there's you know stadium sharing issues like the Yankees uh, and okay. NYCFC and Atlanta and so on but I do feel like MLS has to do a better job of giving itself a slot in the schedule. And that's not just the playoffs either. That's like the regular season I'm talking about as well. And it's so important for for leagues to get a slot that is their own. For instance, you know, on a on a Sunday night, I know there's going to be a big La Liga game on a Sunday night. And, and I look at how the Colorado-Portland game on Thanksgiving, now obviously that is an exceptional case because you can't just play every game on, on Thanksgiving. And we all know because everyone's at home, that's Can't why this we, game Graham? Got... <laughs> well, we could. I'd be, I'd be in favour of that. Um, but... That got the, I think, the second highest TV audience in league history besides yep. Adu's, Adu's, Freddie Adu's debut and MLS Cup finals. So that kind of shows you the value of actually picking a time where people can watch these games. And mm. with MLS, like, there's been great growth with MLS in terms of attendances and soccer-specific stadiums and leagues and teams and markets, but it feels like TV is kind of the, or broadcast is the final frontier for the league, and I, I feel that this is one of the things they need to do is do a better job of, I call it MLS hour. I think they have to carve out an MLS hour somewhere in the schedule. MLS hour. It's like magic hours when the sun's just right, Joe. Uh, Graham, it sounds beautiful. Joe, I come to you, uh, MLSsoccer.com's Joe Lowry. Um, uh, uh, an impartial take on uh, uh, the playoffs, please. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's too complicated right now. For me, as someone who's hip deep in this stuff, I know when games are. I know who's playing. I know what's going on. But not everybody is, right? And I'm very aware of that. I think a clearer, simpler, and more regular, more consistent schedule would be great. I don't know if it's... Richard kind of frames this question as this being the next step for MLS to take the next evolution. I don't know that that's true, but I do think that this would be a help. So I do think it would be a part of MLS continuing to evolve. Ryan, you pulled those numbers. I took the exact same approach. It's been between 18 and 23 days this year for the top seeds to play. It's the longest time, but it's been at least 15 days for the top seeds to to play a game in the playoffs after decision day in MLS. It's been at least 15 days in each of the last three years. It's too long. It's too much of a break. And I, I know there's complications too. There's international breaks. There is the stadium sharing, which I think is a great point that you made, Taylor. Five current MLS teams share a stadium with an NFL team in their in-season right now during Major League Soccer's playoffs. It'll be six next year when Charlotte FC joins. So it's not as easy as just saying, yep, this is bad and we need to change it and we can just pencil it in and it'll be all fixed. It's not. And I sympathize with people who have to make these decisions, but it is too long of a gap. It takes momentum away from the season. The playoff schedule itself is inconsistent and weird. Graham, I appreciate how you mentioned the the Thanksgiving Day game because I think that could be an opportunity for MLS to do that over and over again and to start popping into the consciousnesses of people out there. That was not awkwardly phrased at all. But it's going to take time to do this, and Major League Soccer could very well, could do very well following the steps of the Premier League or of the National Football League or of La Liga or whatever. It's easier said than done, but little steps along the way. Thanksgiving Day games, maybe shortening that gap between the end of the season and the start of the postseason, things like that are would be and are good first steps in this process. And in, in, in terms of fixing the problem of the revolution waiting too long for their for their first match as the supporter shield winners, is the solution to the easiest solution to that not just to limit the number of teams in the playoff? Yep. Because that that's why they're waiting so long, isn't it? Because there's so many teams in those first round matches and then obviously you've got the conference semifinals which are, um you know you obviously need to have, but those it's those first round matches that are delaying everything. So if you if you make the playoffs short um smaller in terms of the number of teams then you you fix that problem almost instantly and in my opinion you make the playoffs easier to follow you make them probably more entertaining you probably raise the stakes a little bit as well and raise the quality basically i'm saying mls cut down your playoffs the number of teams in your playoffs cut down the number of teams in the playoffs and then also if you can just shorten the gap between decision day and the first round i mean we didn't have games until the 20th of november and decision day was i believe 12, 13 days before that. Um, so it just doesn't need, there doesn't need to be that much of a break. Teams don't need that long, seven, 10 days max. That's kind of the figure that Jordan was giving on our show yesterday. That's that's a good window, but anything beyond that, and I think you start to lose eyes and you start to lose people's attention and their desire to watch the games at all. 
Yeah, I think you've nailed it there, Joe. It's the, it is that gap between this season day and the first round, the first first round games, because it could be one week. It doesn't need to be two. Um, Joe, it does seem like the Thanksgiving game was a success. Uh, we were told that I think uh, five billion people watched it, but it's gone down to about one point <laughs> million have watched it uh, with those figures <laughs> being revised. Um, could there be a world where MLS Cup final? is on Thanksgiving Day. It can't happen next year because obviously the World Cup is taking place during that time. But would that be a good idea? You know, expedite the playoffs a little bit so you have your showpiece game on a day where virtually everybody's got the day off that could be watching it. It's not bad, Ryan. I hadn't thought about that before. It's not It's not bad. And, and it does sort of line up timing-wise with what I believe MLS kind of wants their schedule to be. So next season, you mentioned this can't happen because of the World Cup, and you're right. But MLS is starting their season on February 26th in 2022, and they have MLS Cup down for November 5th. So you extend the offseason a little bit. I know Major League Soccer is generally trying to tighten up that offseason and and provide more uh, competition in season, and League's Cup is going to be a part of that. So there's some other factors here. But yeah, ending the season on Thanksgiving, on whatever, whatever date that Thursday is each year, it would give people a date on the calendar to say, yeah, I know this this game is on this day. It's like with the Super Bowl. I always know it's going to be the first Sunday in February, and that's really helpful to have in the back of my head. And I think I think MLS would be would be doing themselves a favor by establishing some sort of continuity from year to year. I, I like the idea of the continuity. I just have to say as a person who occasionally goes to MLS Cup, uh, I don't want it to be on Thanksgiving. I think probably a lot of journalists would not love if they had to be away from their families to cover okay, MLS Christmas Cup. Day, then. Maybe that's a minor thing. Would you say, Graham? Christmas Day then. Oh, perfect. That's better. That's better. Let's just make it Christmas Day. No, I mean, that's a minor complaint, but I think that's maybe a, a personal one. But yeah, for me, I think they would worry about the conflict of a holiday and scheduling it on that holiday and trying to steal Thanksgiving's thunder. How dare you, MLS? Yeah, it doesn't stop people going to garbage Detroit Lions games, though, Taylor, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, but that's because it's a tradition, Ryan. The Lions are terrible on Thanksgiving. We all know this. Something tells me that Don Garber doesn't really care too much about stealing Thanksgiving's thunder as well, but I don't know. Could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you very much, Richard. We go now to Robert Cordova's question. Which clubs would be a dis- at a disadvantage with players taking part in the 2022 Africa Cup of Nations? The 33rd AFCON taking place uh, from January 9th to February 6th, coming up in a matter of weeks uh, in Cameroon. It's the first one since 2019. It's usually biennial. Um, Graham, looks like around 15 Premier League clubs are going to be affected, up to 40 Premier League players. But which club, Premier League or otherwise, is going to be at the biggest disadvantage, asks Robert. Yeah, so I went through all the uh, Premier League clubs primarily to see which players would would be missing for for AFCON um, at the start of next year, as you say. I think maybe the, the one that's most obvious would be Liverpool. There's already been a lot of chat around Liverpool because obviously... Two of their their fabled famous front three are um, likely to be away for Afcon, so that's Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane, and then you also have Naby Keita as well, who's maybe not so much of a loss. Liverpool do have a, a lot of options in midfield, but certainly losing Salah and Mane um, could impact their title challenge quite significantly, you would say. And then another one that further down the table that I would mention is Watford. Um, yeah. So Ismail Assar, who is I would say their best player. He might not be around, I would suggest, at Watford for more than this season. So losing him for any period is is a big blow. And then uh, Emmanuel Dennis as well, who's probably their best forward in great form at the moment as well. And then uh, Peter Etebo as as well for them. So obviously the stakes for Watford are really high in that they are in a relegation battle. If you're losing players as a a mid-table team, uh, you know, like Arsenal or someone, uh, then you are maybe not... It's not going to be such an impact impact on your season, but for Watford, it could be the difference between them staying up or uh, going down. That's a that's a big hit for Watford. I do just want to add, Ismail Asar is injured currently. He picked up a knee injury against Manchester United, so we yeah. don't really know his availability. The Athletic reported and, and just, I guess, recycled this information that Saar will be out likely around a month, which would make it challenging for him to go. We don't really know what's up there, but either way, playing without Saar is uh, no bueno for Watford. No bueno indeed. Watford with uh, potentially six players out, including Sart, it seems, Graham. Um, I I wonder, um, there are clubs who are affected like uh, Liverpool quite prominently, but and Watford is a very good example. What about Crystal Palace, who yeah. have Chico Coyote, um, Jordan Ayew, Jeffrey Schlupp, and Wilfred Zaha all potentially or most likely going? Taylor, what do you think of that? For me, pound for pound, they might be the most affected team. 
Yeah, I think uh, I, I agree with Graham. I think Liverpool is probably the one that could suffer the most ill effect because of two of those players from that front line being gone. But Crystal Palace was the other the other one that came right to mind because the players you mentioned likely to 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 go, but also are players that have played so consistently for Crystal Palace this season. Jordan Ayew has played in thirteen of fourteen Premier League games. Koyate twelve of fourteen. Schlupp ten of fourteen. Zaha thirteen of fourteen. That's a lot of starts to be missing for a club like Crystal Palace who don't have a a ton of money and obviously don't won't be able to kind of go out and free spend to bring in temporary replacements so how they kind of bridge that gap is going to be a challenge then there's other sort of like like Leicester will be missing four players I'm but I'm sure Leicester can can find a way to make make it through and be just fine Chelsea would be the other one just because Mendy's going to be yep. gone and when you're missing your starting goalkeeper uh that can be an issue especially when they haven't always trusted the people behind uh Mendy yeah, I was going to say especially when your second choice is uh Kepa Yeah yeah and then they were also missing uh Hakim Ziyech as well from Morocco uh, but they have plenty of attacking talent. But missing their goalkeeper, their starting goalkeeper at that, uh, could be a problem because I also think Senegal are likely to go deep. I have a feeling Egypt and Senegal will both go deep, which means uh, Liverpool might be without Salah and Mane that much longer. And, and I guess we should probably mention, even though Manchester City have, they're probably the best equipped to handle the loss of a key player, but nonetheless, uh, Riyad Mahrez as, as well, he's... Mm-hmm. I think he flies under the radar as one of City's most important players, so they they, they might feel that a little bit, although as I say, they do have um, more options than any other team in the league, so they might not they might survive. Joe, uh, any teams we've missed out? Maybe Arsenal's worth discussing, Thomas Partey potentially missing out, uh, Pepe, um, El Nene, um, I mean Aubameyang's not scoring for them now, so maybe he could be not scoring for them in January as well. Yeah, Arsenal's on my list for sure, and they've got games during this period, during AFCON, against Man City, against Tottenham, Burnley, and Wolves. And a lot of those are key games based off of where they are in the table and where those teams I just mentioned are in the table in terms of keeping keeping their spot towards the top of the Premier League. Arsenal's a good shout, Ryan. Another one that I, I wanted to mention is Burnley, um, with Maxwell Cornet potentially being called up to the Ivory Coast. Burnley are, aren't going to be missing a ton of players in terms of quantity, but quality-wise, Cornet is their leading scorer, and they're fighting to get out of the relegation zone. They're in 18th right now in the league, which is that third to bottom spot. So they're in the relegation zone right now as a recording. Losing your leading goal scorer for a month-ish, or, or, or a little bit less, two weeks, three weeks, whatever it's going to be, that's not ideal. So I looked at Burnley, and then to go along the line of reasoning that Taylor was using, looking at teams that might go deep, Senegal and Morocco are two that I, I have in mind. So we already talked about Liverpool potentially being without Sadio Mane for a while. Napoli could be without Koulibaly, and that's that's a big blow for them. He's already dealing with a little knock, but he should yeah. be back in time to be called up by that team. We already mentioned Mendy and Chelsea too. And then with Morocco, a non-Premier League team, we haven't really gotten outside of the Premier League, but Sevilla could be without Bono, Bono, their goalkeeper, and then Yosef and Nezri, who's a, a forward for them too. Oh, yeah. Two players that are, are relatively important to that team, and we we all just watched them over the weekend, and we saw a lot of these components playing under Lopetegui. So that's that's a team outside of the Premier League that could be dealing with uh, some cracks that need to be papered over for about a month or so. Yeah, Joe, with Napoli as well, you mentioned Koulibaly, but there's also Angisa, there's Osimen, there is Goulem, and there's another Algerian, uh, Unas. Uh, so they're going to be missing five players potentially in that Napoli team that, again, don't have a, a ton of depth, and especially when we're talking about a player like Koulibaly, uh, who is one of their captains, but is also just such a like rock at the back for them. Yeah. Uh, what they're able to do in his absence, Angisa has been important for them this season. Obviously, Osimen scores goals, leads that line, has the speed that terrifies defenses so i think napoli could also be uh in for a rough couple of weeks indeed this uh this edition of afcon by the way was originally scheduled for june and july 2021 uh last summer but unfavorable weather conditions moved it uh back to january um it's been yeah pushed to this january uh so it's it's gone back onto its winter schedule where other they toyed with having it in the summer for a little while but uh yeah uh that's there's going to be plenty of teams mm. who are without key players uh after the uh, festive period robert thank you very much for your question we'll be back with much more after these messages looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone well, luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. 
Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, we are back with your listener questions. Here comes one from Cigars Rira Majiri. While it's very common for coaches or managers to be fired quite often, why don't players get fired in the same way? Don't the clubs fill out, uh, don't the clubs still pay out the manager when they fire them ahead of contract? Why not do the same with players, asks Cigar. Um, it seems to me, uh, Taylor, historically footballers or soccer players only usually get fired for disciplinary issues or when they go to prison. Um, so it's a good question for Cigar. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, it is a really good question. I wanted to ask first to you all, am I correct in saying that this is not exclusive to soccer? Like, I think most sports would prefer to fire their coach before they're firing their like star player or a couple of their star players am am i correct in saying that or do do you think it's different in other sports i think the the mechanisms of soccer make that the the case certainly taylor i think the big the big two points for me are that a manager is the easiest piece of the puzzle to move out when you're trying to make a wholesale change rather than one player Mm -hmm. on an entire team and i think a big economic part of it is you can sell players but you can't sell managers so it's more troublesome to move on players for a hit when you can take the hit yeah. on the manager because you're not going to sell them. And oh, yeah, Taylor, think, to, your, think, to your question, I think yeah. I, I think a lot of other sports the same thing applies. Like I don't Thank, think yeah. you see you see players getting removed and coaches staying on terribly often. You could see them getting traded or not having their contracts renewed, mm-hmm. but you don't really see them dismissed in the way that you see coaches dismissed. And thanks, because I wanted to I wanted to answer this one as best I could, but I think that does trip me up a little bit because I think there are certain mechanisms that make it more likely for a manager to be sacked instead of a player. But it does seem like fundamentally, if you've got a group of however many players on a roster, it's easier if they're maybe underperforming or if a few of them don't seem happy to get rid of the the manager and hope that a new manager, a new personality changes things or uh, creates a spark that gets something going. So I think that does happen kind of across the board in sports. But then I think there are certain structures in place in soccer and football that that make it more likely for the manager to go, specifically being transfer windows, that if you are going to get rid of a player who is underperforming, you only have certain windows when you can register new players. Whereas with managers, as far as I understand, no such regulation. You can sack and hire managers as much as you want. And in Italy, sometimes that happens like six times a season. Valencia, I think, had five in one season or four in one season. So I think it basically you do have some structures in place. I think the other aspect would be that Weirdly, it seems like it is more acceptable in the footballing world for a front office person to get the manager wrong, but not the star acquisition. And I think there's a strange amount of pride wrapped up in not being the one who brought in a flop. And somehow it's more acceptable, I think, for managers to be a flop. And you can kind of put that on them. Jose Mourinho is this temperamental, cantankerous person that no one could have ever known was going to be that way, except everyone could have definitely known that. It's just sort of you can dismiss it a bit once you don't need to defend that person. Whereas with a player, I think there's a vested interest in not showing your cards, not tipping your hand and saying, yeah, this isn't really working. We want to get rid of this player because then you have also sort of shot yourself in the foot when it comes to resale value. So I think there's an element of pride when it comes to players. I think there's certainly financial ramifications as well. And then I think there are squad limitations that make it more likely for the manager to go. And and the thing I was going to to mention about this question, the, the the question poses why not the same with why not do the same with players? It isn't common for this to happen, but it, it the clubs will actually do this. It's just maybe not in the same way that they'll do it as a, with a manager. So obviously, when a manager gets paid off, they're getting paid essentially not to work. But if you look at an example, I I thought of was Wayne Rooney, for example, when he left Manchester United and went to Everton. Manchester United were paying it was either fifty percent or close to fifty percent of his of his wage of his salary to play for Everton. So in a sense, they were paying up his contract for him to leave Manchester United. It was just that he was 
going to another club and for the duration of the time that he was at that other club Manchester United were essentially handing him a wage I think Man United did the same with Alexis Sanchez as well where they were paying a, a good portion of, of his wage to go on loan in that case to, to Inter Milan good so business. I guess that the, the loan mechanism is slightly different with Sanchez but then what happened for, for Sanchez to go permanent, permanently to Inter Milan I believe and I found some reports on this that Man United paid up a certain amount of his contract and that tent, when that happens it tends to be to a he's a player who maybe isn't so keen to leave and someone who's going on big wages to lower wages at another club which would have been the case for Sanchez going from Manchester United where he was earning like five billion dollars a week to Inter Milan who weren't paying him that much so he got a, a, a portion of his, his Manchester United contract paid up for him to go to Inter Milan so it, it does happen with players it's just maybe not as common as with managers. Joe, could this be? A, there could be a reputational aspect of this as well. If a player were to be sacked, it'll be harder for them to carry on with their careers. Whereas a manager, it's it's pretty acceptable that you are fired and you get a great job thereafter. For me, it, it comes down to value. Well, it comes down to visual, Ryan, which I think you you mentioned earlier. Right, it's easier to look like you're addressing a problem when you fire a coach than when you fire a player. Again, that doesn't all, happen all that often. So it looks like, oh, we're, we're being proactive, we're trying to fix this, when in reality, a manager's impact is, is generally overstated anyway. So there's, there's the visuals aspect of it. And then I think there's value. Players have value on, on the market in a way that coaches don't, really. I mean, maybe a few coaches do. There's exceptions to this. But generally speaking, players can be turned into money in a way that coaches cannot be turned into money. Even players who are less... Even a player who you think of is not, as being not even all that important compared to a coach who you would think is being pretty important. There's still a gulf in a lot of situations in the value between those two people with the player having more value and able to be transferred into cash for a club. I think that really, to, to get to Segar's question, I think that really is the single biggest factor here because of how soccer works and how the transfer market works and how we attribute value to different parts of sports and with players being the most important part. You can't have a game if you don't have players. I think that is the the biggest factor at play here. So, Carl, thank you very much for that question. A very interesting one indeed. Uh, by the way, while I was researching this, I, I kind of looked into players who have been sacked, and it does, as I say, tend to be disciplinary issues. I think the most interesting one, Graham, I don't know if you remember Adrian Mutu at Chelsea. Um, he was relieved yeah. of duties in 2004 when he tested positive for naughty drugs. Um, not only was he fired, he had to pay, FIFA ruled that he had to pay Chelsea over £15 million in compensation for breaching the terms of his contract. And he went through many legal wrangles to try and uh, get out of that fine. And he didn't. I think he still is either on the hook for it or he's had to pay it. Crazy. Yeah, that that there can't be many cases like that. I'd imagine that that seems, uh, given the precedent across the board, that that seems a little harsh to me. Anyway, but yeah, that that's a sore one. It was sore indeed, and maybe yeah, yeah, not not so fun times for Adrian Mutu or Chelsea in that instance. Sagar, thank you for the question. We move on to Jackie Choi. Which domestic leagues or club teams do you think will benefit the most from the World Cup being in the middle of the season? And which clubs do you think will suffer? For example, says Jackie, will a middling Premier League team have more success next season because all Man City's players were at the World Cup and didn't get the rest that, say, Southampton's roster might get? Taylor, I come to you. It does seem a lot of Premier League teams, perhaps most Premier League teams, will be uh, impacted by uh, the World Cup this year. Yeah, I think I think a lot of clubs around the world will be. I think I looked at it from a league perspective, and weirdly, I think Major League Soccer might be one of the leagues that is oh, set yeah. up the most to benefit from it because the league runs through the summer. You usually have a World Cup in there that does take some players away, but it certainly takes eyes away. And I think when you don't have the World Cup, when you don't have other international competitions, like maybe leagues will start earlier, but I think there will be a chunk of time when Major League Soccer can sort of dominate the marketplace if you're looking for live soccer, especially here in this country. I think you'll get more people tuning into MLS because there's not much else to watch when it comes to soccer at that point. And that is like that was the reason one of the main reasons why they wanted to get MLS's back underway so quickly is because they knew that they had sort of a captive audience who wanted to watch something so we can make that happen. And I think MLS could benefit from it uh, in this case. I think the Bundesliga is going to be largely unaffected because they already have that lengthy winter break and I think they can adjust it to start a little bit earlier and maybe finish a little bit earlier and so then you can sort of have a gap that you would have had anyway you can allow for a little bit of time to recover and then the league resumes and I think that they will be 
mostly okay, barring the obvious injury concerns and things like that. I have a larger answer to this as well, but I've talked plenty already, so I will turn it over to everyone else, and then maybe we'll come back to me. We'll see. Yeah, I think I think if you're looking at the league, sorry, Ryan, I think if you're looking at the leagues, undoubtedly the, the league that's going to be impacted the most, I think, is the, the Premier League. In terms of the big five, anyway, Scotland as well will be impacted uh, to a certain extent because obviously we're not getting as many players called up. But the Premier League, um, any league in Europe that has a winter break, even a short one, so Spain has a, has a short mm-hmm. winter break of, of, of two weeks not as long as the Bundesliga, that's that's going to mitigate the blow of, of, of having the World Cup in the middle of the season. The Premier League does not have a winter break and, in fact, actually ramps up the games around the festive period, which I have to admit I, I am a fan of. I would be disappointed to see that go. I'm a bit of a Luddite in that respect. I like my Boxing Day football, but in this case, it's going to be a big problem for the Premier League. Uh, I think it's eight days between the World Cup final and the resumption of the Premier League season, yeah. which is absolutely wild. So maybe in that respect, Graham, is it best, uh, is it most beneficial for teams with players of nations who are going to go home after three games? So they get to go and have the experience, the confidence of playing in a World Cup, but they still get at least a few weeks rest uh, and, you know, combined with the match practice that they'll get in the World Cup. Is that the best compromise, possibly? Um, yeah, I, I guess, because obviously th- those players that are still going to the World Cup are going to be high quality players, but you're still getting them back after the after the first the first stage of the tournament. So yeah, I could see the logic in that. I went through a lot of the teams in, in the Premier League in particular, because as I say, I think that is going to be the league that's impacted the most. So I think the the, the teams, the reflex, rea- reflex reaction is to think that the best teams will be hit the hardest by the World Cup, because obviously they'll have the most players called up to national teams. However, you could also argue they've got the most depth and so they'll be best equipped. Then you have teams near the bottom of the Premier League who might not have many players called up at all and they should be okay. And I think it's the teams in between those two extremes that could find themselves in a bit of trouble. So the first club that sprung to mind for me, I just looked through some of their, their through some of their players, through their squad, was Aston Villa. So they would lose Emi Martinez, who obviously Argentina, Emi Bendia as well, who's been in that squad recently. So Argentina probably going far in that tournament. Ollie Watkins, has been part of the England squad recently as well Tyrone Mings and then uh, you've also got hopefully John McGinn (laughs) I'm just manifesting this into existence now with John McGinn but uh, Matty Cash as well I think he plays for he's playing for Poland as as well now Um, so who's replacing those players for them because that that's the kind of club they don't they have players that are good enough to go to the World Cup but they don't have the depth to kind of replace them so it's, it's those kind of teams that I think might struggle the most Yes, it's the same conundrum as Afghan. It's your Crystal Palaces yeah. and your Watfords and your Aston Villas who might actually suffer those those middle teams, which Jackie referred to. Taylor, I'm going to take a slightly different approach with your with your um, when you posited that Bundesliga teams might be uh, benefiting or unaffected because. Um, you know, Bayern Munich players are used to going and chilling for Qatar every winter anyway. It's what they do in their winter break. But when they are used to a winter break and you have a lot of German players who are in reality going to go deep in this tournament. Um, in previous times when they've been used to having a few weeks off to put their feet up and they're going to be going deep in a tournament um, in, in Asia instead, does that not work against them somewhat? Well, I mean, just in the sense that they have like more games to play, yeah, certainly. But I think they also have then the summer to have a, lo- a longer break. And I think also you'll still get a lot of teams that do have that break because they don't have players going. And so you'll have players still training probably in warm weather climates and people who are left off squads or people whose teams don't qualify will still have that sort of that time together. So I think really it just comes down to who gets injured because we know there's going to be injuries coming out of the World Cup. And I think that's the biggest thing. I think that sort of is my answer is that there's more likely to me. And I I don't think this is a cop out answer because I genuinely mean it. But like, I think it's just going to be a lot of little ramifications that we won't know about until maybe like a year after the tournament. I picture a lot of think pieces about how this little decision led to this entire gigantic decision. For example, so often if a club needs a new manager, they will wait until after the World Cup because maybe a potential candidate is coaching at the World Cup. Or maybe somebody, like, there's a hot hand. Like, oh, this guy's doing this really interesting thing. Let's get him in. That can happen when you have the World Cup in the fall then maybe you have a club who's less inclined to go after a manager. Maybe they don't sack a manager they would have sacked otherwise. Maybe they hold on to that manager but don't really want to back him so they don't invest. And you might have more like clubs more likely to get relegated because they're holding off on bringing in a new manager or sacking their current one. You might have players not be on the move because – 
sometimes with a World Cup, you get those sort of jacked up fees because one player, James Rodriguez, had a really good tournament and suddenly he is going for six times what he probably would have before the World Cup. So you might have permutations in the transfer market we don't know yet, both positive and negative. And I think that is going to be the most interesting thing to me is just how much everything is going to have to be adjusted and how seamlessly that can happen. And I think in some ways it will be seamless and in other ways it will be very much the opposite of that. Joe, your thoughts on this question. What about um, teams with French players on them? They're due a mutiny. That could have a negative effect when they come back in January. (laughs) Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I I am excited for another 12,000-word athletic article about the the drama inside of France, uh, France's (laughs) national men's team. I think that would be great fun. I... I pretty much agree with everything that's that's been said already. I I think Graham especially hit the nail on the head. There's there's a, a reality where the big clubs will be losing a lot of players, but they have the depth to absorb at least some of that in a way that maybe the middle tier teams in some of these leagues just don't. And so I think those teams could actually be at the biggest disadvantage. But I'm not covering any new ground there. I think the teams at the bottom will still likely be the teams at the bottom. Ultimately, I think the teams at the top will will still stay there by and large and it will be the the middle tier teams that have the most difficulty trying to figure out how to adapt without some of the pieces of their squad thank you very much joseph thank you jackie we'll be back shortly with a few more listener questions looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we've got some listener questions. Here's one from Shreyas Romani. Hey, Shreyas, how's it going? He's got a two-parter. Part one, what are some of the most notable or your favourite soccer matches played in bad weather? Part two, why don't more soccer teams have stadiums that are covered or with retractable roofs? Uh, Joe, I come to you first. I have a feeling there's maybe a USMNT snow game you might put on your list. You dog. Yes, that is that is far and away number one on my list. Both of the games on my list actually come from the same stadium, and that's Dick Sporting Goods Park in Colorado. It's where the Colorado Rapids play. The Snow Classico has got to be number one. It was it was snowing, you guys. The field was, was white, and the ball was hard to see. It felt like we were watching uh, a very, 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 very tame version of that game over the weekend when we watched uh, Man City and uh, what was that? Man City and West Ham? That's what it was, right? Yep. Man City, West Ham? That, that's that's got to be number one for me. The U.S. winning that game in World Cup qualifying, Clint Dempsey gets the goal in the first half. It was a snow fight. I think that's how uh, some folks from Costa Rica put it after the first 15 minutes of this one. It's it's a wild thing that a soccer game took place there. Costa Rica appealed. Um, FIFA denied the appeal and, and the result stood. So that's number one far and away for me. Number two, a little bit less well-known. A CCL game happened in that same stadium, Dick Sporting Goods Park, in 2018 between Toronto and the Colorado Rapids. It was three degrees, fellas. It was three degrees in that in that uh, in that stadium at that time. I cannot fathom playing soccer in three degree weather, and I am glad that I did not have to, and that I'm <laughs> instead sitting inside of a climate controlled room that's talking to you all. Weather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a positively beautiful summer day, three, three degrees Fahrenheit in Glasgow, right, Graham? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, being a Scottish football fan, pretty much all matches are played in bad weather. Um, <laughs> so I've got a number to mention. <laughs> Go ahead, Graham. I was actually just going to use it as an excuse to tell a, a, a personal tale about a game that I went to personally. So I, I once travelled up to Arbroath for a Sterling Albion game on Boxing Day, funnily enough, which I've already said is, is my favourite football day in the, in, in the year. And Arbroath isn't exactly close to where I, I live. And Arbroath Stadium is right on the North Sea, 
uh, and when I say that, I mean it is the the wall behind one of the stands literally backs onto the sea. So when you kick a ball over the stand, it goes into the sea. That's how close it is. And the wind that day was so bad that the goalkeepers couldn't couldn't get a goal kick uh, beyond the edge of their box. Quite literally, couldn't get it beyond the edge of their box. The ball was blowing straight back to the the goalkeepers, and it resulted in this bizarre situation I've never seen anywhere else in any other game where. Every outfield player was lining up on the edge of the box as the goalkeeper was kicking it out because the ball was blowing back into the box and there was a chance that they could then run into the box. And this is when you couldn't play a goal kick into the box. So they're all lined up on the edge of the box. And as soon as the goalkeeper hit it, they were all then standing in the box, hoping to get like a header or something in, in, in the box. It was absolutely bizarre and the match was abandoned after 10 minutes. But those 10 minutes were very fun. And even though I didn't get to watch a match on Boxing Day and it was way up north, and I spent a lot of time travelling up there. It was kind of worth it because I got a good story out of it. And I remember that game more than uh, most games that were played to 90 minutes. Were you wearing your kilt that day, Graham? Or was it pretty chilly down there? I mean, I, I, I wear my kilt most days. Do you Do you not? Do you wear it like a true Scotsman? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah there, there is a temptation, Graham, to go for games that, that have snow on them, but there are a few windy and wet games we should mention. Uh, when yep. I did the Dirty Tackle blog, there was a number of sort of obscure games that I covered, and I dug up some of those. Uh, for example, there was a friendly match between Dynamo Kiev and Asif Mendes. Uh, I don't even know where they're from, full disclosure. But uh, there's an own goal where the goalkeeper takes a goal kick. It goes up in the air about 30 feet. And then goes straight back into the goal. The wind is so um, so um, strong against him. And there's, there was another one I found from the blog uh, in 2013. There was a Kazakhstani league match where the pitch was so waterlogged that they put the ball down for a corner in or by the corner flag, and it just floats away. It just starts floating away on the puddles. Taylor, what do you got? Uh, the Snowfro game is certainly on that list for me. Another one that I've mentioned previously uh, is MLS Cup 1996. I'm sending you all uh, the group. I will like try to post this later. This is the photo that I always think of with that with that MLS Cup game. But it's Richie Williams trying to make a play on Kobe Jones. It's a close-up of them, and you can see just how much water there is on that pitch because it started raining, it continued raining, and then it rained even more as the game went on. And so it just became this, like, slog but in the best possible way of like when you'd get the ball bouncing in unpredictable ways and and just sitting up in a puddle all of a sudden and so it kind of made that game even more unpredictable than it already was and as a DC fan I enjoyed the win there so I think that one looms pretty large for me and then the other one that like I was not there for I did not cover but I think like as Graham was as demonstrating, when there are stories behind it, then I think it it tends to be this bigger thing, this thing that kind of is preserved in the memory. And 2013 MLS Cup seems to be that for the very least most media people that I've talked to about that game. Anyone who was there has a story because it was, I believe they had all of the press outside. It was 20 degrees at kickoff, and I think with the wind show, much felt like much colder than that, and then it got much colder than that. It's the longest MLS Cup game in history. It went 10 rounds in the shootout, with Sporting KC eventually winning 7-6. to six. But even uh, when I was uh, at the USA-Mexico game, there was a person there talking about how people's laptops froze or stopped working because they got so cold that they wouldn't function anymore, that people kept trying to bundle up and having to like go for walks and were missing parts of the game and had to cover for each other. So like just how cold it was for the people in the stadium, I think made that game at somewhat more of a spectacle or at least more like prominent in my memory than maybe the result would have been otherwise. Wonderful. Just looking at that picture you sent, Taylor, which I hope you post later of that 96 MLS Cup final, um, the the baggy 90s kits, they look like they're so heavy and they carry so much water on them as well. (laughs) And those shoes too. Those shoes look, the socks, everything looks like it has like an extra maybe 15 pounds of weight on it because of the rain. Oh, just like me after Thanksgiving, extra 15 pounds of weight. Boom, boom. Um, there was a, a, another game I wanted to point out in December 2017 in the Bundesliga, one I came across in my research. It was Cologne 3, Freiburg 4. It was a relegation uh, six-pointer, this game, effectively. Uh, Cologne went 3-0 up in this one, and they lost 4-3. An absolutely wild game in which there was very, very heavy snow. The opening goal for Cologne, um, the referee couldn't actually find the penalty spot, so he had to go to the, the, the goal line and 
march out 12 yards and sort of mark it and say, <laughs> put the ball there. So, and, and by the way, Graham, they had a real orange ball that probably cost less than $100 they were using in that game as well. Um, and Cologne, who I say lost that game 4-3 to Freiburg, Cologne went down that season and Freiburg survived by three points. So it was a pretty crucial game in the end. And another thing I learned today is that the first match in World Cup history was on July 13th, 1930 in Uruguay. Uh, France beat Mexico 4-1. It was snowing in that game because it was winter, of course, in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, I didn't catch any footage of that. Not sure that they had cameras at that one, but um, uh, I'll I'll take the word for the report that I read on that one. Uh, The second part of of the question here from Shreyas was about uh, stadiums with roofs and why there is not more of a propensity for them. Um... The more famous stadiums I can think of, certainly in Europe, which do have roofs, the Johan Cruyff Arena, the, uh, formerly the Amsterdam Arena, which was the first major European stadium with a roof. Um, the Veltons Arena at Schalke, they can close the roof when uh, when they want to. Um, and Parken also, um, FC Copenhagen's home, which was used at Euro 2020, they can close that one up too. And my understanding is that the new Bernabeu should yeah. have a roof as well, Graham. It looks, it looks very amazing. fancy, doesn't it? It does, and I'm really looking forward to that stadium going it, it, it being built. Sorry, it's the it's the the best big stadium I've ever been to, the Bernabeu, and so the, the the thought that they're improving it further is 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 quite something. But I think the to to answer the question of why soccer teams um, don't have retractable roofs or why more teams don't have them, it's it's surely got to be cost, right? Because it's so expensive to have to build a retractable roof. So I couldn't find a breakdown of the the Bernabeu project, but. It, that renovation and it's not it's not even a complete new rebuild it's a renovation that that's going to cost close to 700 million pounds um which is the best part of a billion dollars um and obviously that is the whole project but i'd imagine a large chunk of that will be the roof i was looking at some other sports and the costs of, of roofs and stadiums so tennis there's there's a number of retractable roofs in, in, in tennis um and they are much smaller arenas as well than a than a soccer stadium so when they put a retractable roof on arthur ash stadium at flushing meadows it cost 150 million dollars the centre court roof at Wimbledon cost a hundred million pounds, and and as, as I say, that's a much smaller arena than a soccer stadium. So I can imagine putting a retractable roof on a soccer stadium costs quite a bit. In addition to cost, Graham, is there not more? Is there also a question of it, um, logistics and the culture of the game? I.e., um, it's a game that's supposed to be played out in the open. Yeah. And in terms of the logistics, um, when you've got a grass field, you kind of need to have some sunshine on it occasionally. Exactly, and you see that even in stadiums that have just roofs over the over the stands, you even see uh, clubs building their new stadiums in a way that the pitch can be taken out and almost put in the direct sunlight. Um, I think they do that looking at an NFL stadium. I saw Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas has a mechanism to take the the field outdoors so that it gets it gets sunlight and it gets water and things. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I'd imagine that would be a logistical problem with the uh with the field and also as you say it's just not part of soccer's culture you can play for instance in tennis they have retractable roofs at every major stadium in the grand slams because you can't play tennis in the rain you can play soccer in the rain and it would only really be a a, a deluge that would stop you from playing so it's it, you'd only really need it once every what once every few years really to stop a game from being postponed yeah. it's, it's a bit of an extravagance yeah um taylor um I was looking at World Cup stadiums for 2022. There's only one of the eight stadiums that has a roof. The Albeit Stadium is going to have a retractable roof. It may already do so, in fact. That kind of surprised me because given the climate, why would they not have roofs and climate cool the stadium a bit better? Um, I'm not I'm not sure. My guess would be that because they I think part of the plan was to build the stadiums more or less underground or build them into the ground. So I think there's probably a built in cooling mechanism already i i also would venture to guess that there is a cost cost saving measure in place because you have to spend more to have that retractable roof you have to have the facilities or you likely have to have the facilities as graham mentioned to move the pitch and all of those things cost money so every time you're opening the roof or closing the roof or moving the pitch you are having to spend money it costs money to move those things to do those procedures and i read an interview with a german club director i forget which one it was was basically asked like why they didn't have a retractable roof and his response was in like 
definitive fashion, that's just another thing that can break. And then you have to try to, like, you have to maintain it. You have to fix it. It's just, I think, increased costs. And so I think for Qatar, there was probably a, we'll hang screens over and we'll provide shade that way. We'll build it in. The stadiums, I believe, are all going to be air conditioned or will have pretty prominent air conditioning. So I'm guessing they think they've taken enough precautionary measures to not need those retractable roofs. Did that... Did that not happen with the Millennium Stadium? I haven't researched this, so I, I don't have any solid information, but I'm sure I saw a report that for a, a period of time they had the roof closed and they said it was just because that was the choice that they had made mm-hmm. for a certain number of games, but actually it was because the roof wasn't working properly. <laughs> <laughs> and so they just said, yeah, we're, we're keeping it closed for now because that's what we want to do, but it's because they literally couldn't get it open. Yeah, yeah. because as soon as you've spent millions and millions and millions of dollars or pounds or whatever it might be on this thing you don't then want to own like oh yeah it's not working again it makes you it can make you look foolish it can make you look like you don't know what you're doing or you hired faulty contractors and anything that makes executives look bad they don't want to uh, be publicly known so i think yeah that makes sense i went to that stadium once to see oasis and foo fighters play a joint show and they had the roof closed and it was still freezing um joe i learned something a couple of weeks ago i should mention here i went to the coliseum here in rome and i learned that they had a roof on the coliseum um it was actually lots of um sections of canvas which they would pull over manually with like pulleys and levers basically uh bc place yeah, and it was it was basically part of the spectacle of the day to say, "Oh, look, look how fancy and rich this empire is. Uh, we we can we can put a roof on our on our stadium here." And as far as I know, Joe, the, it went really well for the Roman Empire. They're still going, I think. I was going to say, the Ro- if the ancient Romans did it, why aren't we doing it? Everything right. was everything was good there, right? There weren't any like major issues yeah. or collapses yeah. or uh, well, yeah, you know. I wonder, I wonder who was pulling those pulleys as well in ancient Rome because I'm going to guess they weren't doing it voluntarily. Uh, Taylor, so don't kill the vibe. Also been part of it. Uh, Taylor, don't kill the vibe. Ryan, Ryan, did they? All right, I'll take it this way. Ryan, did they also blow your mind when they mentioned that they used to hold mock naval battles in the Colosseum? Oh, I didn't get to that bit. What, yeah. what happened there? They used wow, to f- did they? they- yeah, they would flood. They would flood the like the center part of it, and then they would have like like they would stage mock battles for like the, so the citizens could see what had happened and uh, in like a famous battle or a famous war. Uh, so yeah, I think it had lots of uh, multifaceted features that Coliseum. Yeah, when my children were saying, "Daddy, what did they do in this Coliseum?" I was like, "Uh, yeah, maybe I'll tell you when you're older what they actually so did Russell with the animals Crow and such." Russell Crowe was a general. Just start. <laughs> just start with that, and I think that's all they need to know. Yeah, thank you very much for the question uh, there, Shreyas. One more for you today from Michael Hastings Black. I like this question. What are some of the most famous, in brackets, unproven conspiracy theories in soccer? I've got the TSS lawyer's uh, fire truck on hold for this one, Jed, so let's be careful. This is a different question to curses, which we've covered, I think, before with, you know, the Bella Gutman curse and so on. This is conspiracy theories uh graham the one that springs to mind immediately here for me is ronaldo at france 98 the original r9 ronaldo who um had a seizure in the dressing room before the final he was on the team sheet and then i remember watching the game on the coverage and they said well his name's been taking off the team sheet there's a lot of confusion that day and um and he got put back on the team sheet uh and the conspiracy graham was that either nike had forced him to play the game or that brazil had bribed some so there's some weird FIFA stuff going on there to to get the uh, tournament in 2006, which they didn't. Um, yeah, that was the one that stood out to me. Yeah, exactly. That that's top of my list as well. Edmundo, who was a, a teammate of Ronaldo in that squad, he's he's been quoted in interviews saying that Nike pressured Brazil to to play him when he when he shouldn't have been playing. The thing that. I think we can all agree that he there's something he wasn't physically right that day. You could see it in his performance. He'd been the the billboard star of that World Cup. He'd been the the player of the tournament up until that point, and in the final he was lethargic in the game, and uh, played well within well within himself. So I don't think there's much there's much um, sort of mystery over the fact that some something happened to him physically. It's just what happened to him as as the the conspiracy theory. There's theories that he had a a, a reaction to some form of painkilling injection he had a, a seizure i think Ed, Ed, edmundo says that in the interview he saw him have a have a fit um 
so yeah, that that is that's one of the biggest mysteries in in world football. I would really like to know just because it's lingered for so long now. You know, it's like what is it, twenty three years or something like that? I would I would like to know what happened one one day, but I'm not convinced we'll ever find out. Yeah, Mister Nike might not let you ever know that, Graham. Uh, so maybe the mystery will remain. Uh, Taylor, another favorite of mine is Lasagna Gate. Uh, this was 2005-2006 Tottenham playing West Ham on the last day of the season if Tottenham won that game they would have overtaken Arsenal into fourth place and nabbed their fourth place trophy their Champions League spot Uh, but most of the Tottenham team got food poisoning from their hotel from a lasagna that night uh, which may or may not have been uh, concocted by Arsene Wenger Arsenal were staying nearby they were playing Wigan and they won their game so that one is uh, that one goes down in Premier League law Taylor I, I like that one quite a bit. Oh, man. All right. I forgot about that one. Uh, I focused on some that are sort of known, but just like not fully proven, like the disgrace of Gijon, the game between Austria and Germany, where they definitely conspired to, they both needed a draw, I think, and then they would both advance, or Germany could win 1-0, and then they would both advance, and that's exactly how it played out, and Everybody could tell that they had both kind of agreed beforehand, but FIFA came out and said no one broke any rules, the result stood, but that one is definitely discussed as definitely being a version of match-fixing, even if no one has ever said it, it did happen. Similarly, you will find lots of reports about when Argentina hosted and won the World Cup, about... Uh, doping and and irregular medical tests and players testing positive for being pregnant and weird, weird blood tests that might have happened. And so I think there's a lot of speculation that maybe the influence of the military junta also playing a part in Argentina uh, eventually winning that World Cup. And then one that I've always sort of heard, never read a ton about, but felt appropriate to include here, would be the 1986 World Cup moving to Mexico instead of the original host country of Colombia. I think I also remember there being stories about uh, a previous earthquake that had still caused problems to infrastructure and they hadn't been able to repair the results of that disaster. But the conspiracy that I have long heard and do believe is that a lot of it related to the drug war that was ongoing in Colombia and the violence and conflict there. They couldn't guarantee stability, but it would have been a very bad look to say such is the instability in the country that we can't host a World Cup, so they went a different route with it. I, I don't know how much I believe that, but it's one that I, another one that I sort of hear widely whispered as factual without it ever being like definitively proven or stated. Yeah, and on that same vein, Taylor, the uh, 1990 World Cup, also involving Argentina, the, the water bottle spiking. Ah, um, yeah. Uh, Branco, uh, the Brazilian defender, claimed that he had there was tranquilizers in a water bottle given to him by an Argentine team physio. Argentina went on to win uh, that game and the, uh, got to the final as well, and they've never exactly denied what happened that day in so many words. But I always wonder, why did Branco take a water bottle from the opposition bench? That's... Yeah, especially like because I imagine, you know, you get the different like bottles mixed up and like, oh, it's a break. Somebody's got a water bottle. Hey, let me get a sip of that. But I do like the idea of somebody being like, no, this one is specifically for you and not seeing that as suspicious at all. Uh, The the other one that I was trying to remember, uh, Argentina in 1978. It is very it's too complex for me to like explain off the top of my head. I just wanted to confirm that it was Peru. But there is a story that like Peru through a game so Argentina could advance. And then weeks later, there was this like massive payment for a grain shipment from Peru to Argentina. And there's an idea that the military junta basically went in and said, hey, if you guys lose this game, it will be financially beneficial to your country. And so they did. That's another one that is very conspiratorial. No one is ever going to say that happened. But if you start connecting dots, those dots get connected easily and quickly. Joe, any unproven conspiracy theories that we've missed off the list? Possibly any that aren't Argentinian or geopolitical? <laughs> uh, I can do the first part of that, but not the second part. Sorry. Um, the only one I have left that has not been said, this one is truly wild and seems really insane to me. Barcelona, back in the Pep Guardiola days, apparently during ah. that period. Yeah, so Taylor knows where I'm going with this. I'd never heard of this until I was researching last night. A Syrian state-owned TV station claimed that Barca's formations were coded messages to arms dealers uh, that would bring weapons to Syrian rebels. So apparently Iniesta was like the start of a route and Lionel Messi further upfield, maybe a little bit wider, was the, the pickup point. Just absolutely insane stuff. That is, again, not something I'd heard of, but kind of blew my mind. Uh, Joe, that one's true. Wake up, sheeple! It's happening! <laughs> 
there's, oh, I need to wake up. Um, You're right. There's another Barcelona Real Madrid one that's just come to mind. Um, the you know the whole UEFA loaner thing where um, there's a there's a uh, an idea that Barcelona are favoured by UEFA because of their UNICEF UNICEF sponsoring. yeah. Um, and this was something uh, that was actually started by Jose Mourinho uh, in the 2010-11 season. Real Madrid were knocked out of the Champions League by Barcelona, who were rather good that season and, you know, the best Barcelona, quite possibly. Um, but it was uh, Josie who said it was, yeah, basically because of advertising for UNICEF. Um, and he said, congratulations for a wonderful football team. It must be difficult to get this power. They have managed to get this power. No one else has a chance, really. Maybe, uh, I don't know, Didier Drogba might feel the same way about um, Barcelona, about that, that period as well. But uh, yeah, the, 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 uh, your, your example there, Joe, is a wonderful one. Um, Graham, anything else we've missed off the list? Any, any crazy stuff you want to talk about here? Yeah, yeah nothing as uh, high stakes or geopolitical as, as some of the stuff that's been, been mentioned in this section. But I, I like the one about whether Steven Gerrard missed a penalty to get Roy Hodgson sacked. <laughs> um, so Gerrard made no secret of how he didn't enjoy playing under Hodgson at Liverpool. And with the, the pressure really on Hodgson at the time he was at Liverpool, Liverpool were 3-1 down uh, away to Blackburn Rovers in a game. Liverpool get a penalty as, as a potential way back into the match and Gerrard misses the penalty and well it sure looked like he deliberately misses the penalty. It's not just the careless motion of the way he takes it, it's the way he almost turns around before it's even over the bar and there's just no reaction from him at all. Of course he has never admitted it or uh, or even hinted at it because it would kind of stain his professionalism a little bit but you watch that penalty and tell me that he doesn't mean to put that over the bar. I, I defy you. There's a, Graham, thank you for that one because that, that one is also is a similar one for Clint Dempsey with the U.S. national team that there was a game in which the United States was up 2-0 over Mexico. Uh, U.S. gets a penalty. Dempsey takes it and misses it. And I know plenty of people, Daryl Grove was one of them, who firmly believed that Dempsey missed that on purpose to preserve Dos Acero so that scoreline would continue to be as iconic as it is. And it is. I think it worked. I believe that one too. I believe all of them. Uh, thank you very much for that question, Michael. And thank you to everybody who has submitted a question. And thank you to you three gents for making such a wonderful audio recording with me today. Taylor Rockwell, thank you, sir. Thank you, my friend. Joe Lowry, thanks. Right back at you. Graham Rothman, I think you're wonderful and I'll take every opportunity to compliment you that I can. Always a pleasure, right? <laughs> oh, thanks, listener. Bye! Slash it.